Let's stand together as we come now to the Bible. It's Ruth chapter 3, and as we come now to God's Word, let's, let's pray together. Father, this is Your Word. We've come to this building with questions or doubts, hopes, dreams, looking for a voice that can cry in the wilderness, saying, this is the way, walk in it. This is Your Word, Father. And so we pray now as we stand in Your presence that You would, by Your Spirit, help us to hear Your Word and to be changed by it for Your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, friends, Ruth chapter 3. I'll read the whole wonderful story. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her, And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a Redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a Redeemer, yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? 
Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Do please sit down. Well, good morning. It's, it's a wonderful story, isn't it? Wonderful story on this bright spring morning. I suppose all of us find habits easier to make than to break. Some of us like our morning cup of coffee just so. It's a, it's a grande or venti from Starbucks, and it has to be just like that. Or we, uh, perhaps some of us, uh, we need to get to the gym a certain number of times a week and at a preferred hour. Or maybe some of us like our desk arranged in a particular way. And it's okay if something's moved out of place, but it's not really how we like it habitually. Some habits are benign, others more nefarious. But it is the human constitution that once we make a habit, we tend to stick to it unless something pretty dramatic happens, either internally in our attitude or externally from someone else or some situation. Now, when it comes to the uh, pattern that humans have to make habits, uh, nowhere, I think, is this more true than when it comes to the subject of this chapter, which, of course, is sexuality. Uh, Patterns of behavior entrench themselves in our minds, and they influence not just ourselves in this regard, but the whole of society. For sexual behavior is inevitably reproductive behavior, not just literally in terms of children, but, but whether we have children as a society, whether we take care of our children. All this influences not just you and me, but the whole of uh, our society. And that said, it, it does not take a rocket scientist to realize that the West is in trouble sexually. I I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that if you happen to visit a society on a different planet where people would pay money to see a plate of food slowly revealed to rhythmic music, you would conclude that that society had a problem with food. And similarly, we have a problem with sexuality. There's no denying it. It is influencing our families, our children, our, our whole demographics in the West, our social dynamics in various inner city areas. As you drive into Chicago and you go past sign after sign on the highway and you see perhaps polecats, well, that's a, a sign of some kind of social tumor, I think. It may encourage you then to know that Ruth chapter 3, with all its beautiful romance and its idyllic narrative, is actually written against a backdrop of far worse uh, sexual decay than we experience even today. And what it is telling us, you see, is it's written against this backdrop of the judges. It tells us at the beginning of the book, this was written in the time of the judges, with all its chaos. What it's telling us is that the answer to our sexual revolution today is a marriage revolution. 
this beautiful story. If you don't believe me that the time of the judges was just as bad as our time, then just uh, when you get home, you can read the last few chapters of that book and you will see that this sweet charm of this uh, story is written uh, deliberately against a culture of ugliness and despicable behavior. What's more, this, this marriage revolution that is the answer to the sexual revolution, what's more, this takes place right at the time of harvest when it appears that the pagan fertility rites would take place. What is more, Ruth herself, the book frequently reminds us, I think intentionally, is a Moabitess. And the Moabites, in the Israelite mind, stood for seduction. They came from an incestual relationship with Lot's. The very word Moab sounded to the Israelite like from the Father. And they had, as a people, seduced Israel when they were wandering in the desert. And to cap it all, the leveret marriage, this kind of strange kinsman-redeemer thing that takes place here, the leveret marriage, and particularly the precise way that Naomi encourages Ruth to try and uh, initiate that, it would have reminded the Israelites, all of them, of a, of a disastrous pattern that was Tamar's uh, promiscuous initiation with her father-in-law, Judah. And yet, in the dirt, a diamond. It reminds me a little in popular culture of the song Helter Skelter. It's a Beatles song from their uh, White Album, and perhaps you know that the crazed Charles Manson used it as a kind of motif for his own uh, gross behavior, but then you too sang it again live and saying, Charles Manson stole it from the Beatles, we're stealing it back. This chapter is about how God redeems sex through a marriage revolution. So look down with me at this, this beautiful, charming story, understanding this, this diamond here in its context. And look down particularly at the, verse, the first uh, four verses, and you'll see there that Naomi at uh, first is, as it were, playing the role of matchmaker. Uh, she, we may imagine, has been watching Ruth as she came home from the fields each day. She has spied the twinkle in Ruth's eye. She's listened carefully to how Boaz has treated Ruth with particular favor, the handful of grain and all that. Perhaps Naomi has even gone herself for a midday picnic to visit Ruth and observe the chemistry between uh, uh, Ruth and Boaz. Well, now Naomi decides that the time has come for some well-meaning maternal advice. She apparently feels some obligation to help Ruth find a home, as she had told her and her sister to go back to Moab to find rest with a man, and she uses exactly the same word here because she thinks she spies an opportunity for her to find rest with Boaz. See, it's the high point of the season. They are threshing the grain, that is, they're sifting through it to sort out the good from the chaff. 
And that was a time that was often marked in those days by celebration and high spirits, bon homie. And she tells Ruth exactly what to do. Make sure you wash. It takes a mother to get away with telling a young pretty thing to have a good bath before you go on a date, I think. <laughs> Put on some oil, uh, the perfumed oil, I think no doubt, that was used to cover up any other potentially off-putting odors and increase the olfactory attraction. Some people think the cloak were sort of a, was her kind of best outfit. Others think a, a poor cloak to indicate her neediness. Or perhaps it was just an outer cloak to keep her warm as she was going out at night. Not only look nice, dear, but make sure you're not cold. It's an important time. You, if you have to wear that nice summer dress, dear, make sure you have a cardigan on top or else you'll freeze to death. And her advice, of course, as has often been noticed, is, to be frank, distinctly risque. Uh, Ruth is to go at dead of night, hidden secretly. Uncover the feet, or limbs perhaps, of Boaz, when no one else notices, and lie down next to him or at his feet. And so lots of people have spent a lot of time passing out the possible innuendos of the various body parts that Naomi here mentions. But actually all we need to say is that in any culture, at any time, Lying down next to a single man on his own in the middle of the night, having uncovered part of his bedclothes, is not exactly subtle messaging. <laughs> now, we must say, nothing improper took place when Boaz woke up. Uh, uh, one person I heard uh, wondered whether Ruth was tickling his feet, you know. And as he woke up, he said, who you? Not, you know, tonight's going to be a good night. You see. So nothing improper took place uh, when Boaz woke up. But, but it was, it was, it simply was a calculated matchmaking move. Uh, perhaps Boaz was a little shy. Perhaps he was so busy with all his responsibilities that he was thinking more about harvesting than dating. Perhaps uh, more sort of um, subtly, the whole notion of a leveret marriage, that is the marriage to a near relative's widow that was described in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, perhaps that whole notion was fraught with perils and hesitations for any Israelite male. But for whatever reason, Naomi decided that both Ruth and Boaz needed a little helping hand. Now, I'm not wanting to suggest that older matrons should go around interfering in younger women's or men's lives, or that the ancient rites of leveret marriage are directly, are directly applicable today, or that clandestine nocturnal dating is a model which we all should emulate these days. But I do think... There is a role for the older generation to be encouraging the younger generation to make good matches. 
After all, if we do not, we can be sure that other people will be encouraging them to make some kind of match. These days, you just sign in online, and immediately on the internet will pop up advertisements for young single people in Wheaton, or wherever your ISP is based when you're online. We need to be explaining to people why they need not just to marry a good-looking person, but a godly person. Why is that? We need to explain. I tend to say these three things you need to find when you're looking for a mate. Here they are. First, loves Jesus. That is not just a Christian, but someone who stretches you spiritually. Well, Boaz was a godly man of standing. Second, is a good friend. That is someone you can get along with, whatever they look like, and you can enjoy all of life with through all the seasons of life. You see, Boaz and Ruth were apparently getting on very well like a house on fire. Third, someone you are reasonably attracted to. Now, other people don't have to be attracted to them, just you. They don't have to be a model, but for you at least, they shouldn't look like the backside of a bus. Now, here's how this works. Men tend to put the third first. Good looking. Women tend to put the second first. A good friend. All three are necessary, and it is necessary that they are in that order of sequence. First loves Jesus, then a good friend, and then someone you are reasonably attracted to. So in this wonderful story we have at the beginning, uh, as uh, God redeems sex with a marriage revolution, the sexual revolution with a marriage revolution, we have first the matchmaker. Second, we have, as uh, the story continues from verse 5 onwards, we have the damsel in distress. (laughs) Now, I hope you're noticing the sort of archetypal roles that Naomi and now Ruth and in a moment Boaz sort of play in this drama, in this romance. I think it's deliberate. They are almost actors on a stage performing their roles, but in so doing, they are intentionally set before us as ways of redeeming the pattern, the habits in the context of judges, and then in our own context of a revolutionary marriage, a godly marriage. And Ruth, you see, is, of course, very much here presented as the archetypal damsel in distress. (laughs) And perhaps the cloak she wore was a poor person's cloak. Was it ripped a little? Was it worn out? And so, though uh, Ruth smells nice and looks nice, she is saying that she's in some need here, you see. And then she turns up, doesn't she? And she submissively lies at Boaz's feet. 
she turns up and does exactly what Naomi asks, except with one addition, an addition of her own initiative to answer Boaz's astonished question, an addition that underlines this damsel in distress status. So when Boaz says, who are you? Verse 10, she replies, I am Ruth, your servant, your servant. As she lies, can you picture it, vulnerably at his feet? And she says, spread your wings. Now, that's a very significant statement, for it references the wings that Boaz has already said in the previous uh, of our chapters, chapter 2, that he has already said are covering Ruth because she has taken refuge under those wings of God in the context of God's people, God's church. Now she's turning around to Boaz, and she is saying, Boaz... I want you to be the expression of God's care for me. As God is covering me with His wings, would you now express that sovereign care of God for me? Would you now cover me with your wings? I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. She repeats that word. Her her damsel in distress status is underlined For she says, pointing to him, you are a redeemer as a damsel in distress. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that uh, all women are sort of archetypally damsels in distress or anything like that. As I think I've mentioned before, I actually come from a rather long line of particularly strong women Uh, My great-grandmother would stand on her soapbox at Speaker's Corner in London, uh, a place that's still used for public debates, and she would stand there defending Christian virtue, you know, publicly. And, And when she was once asked why, despite her strong views, she did not support the suffragette movement of the time, that is, women having the vote, she was said to have replied, any woman who cannot get her husband to vote her way is not much of a woman. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that is good either. (laughs) Don't get that wrong. You can be a manipulative damsel in distress. And that is not what Ruth is doing. She's just playing, and I think this is how every successful marriage does it in one way or another. You cannot script it but uh, it is predictable. She's just playing her Eve for her Adam in a Genesis chapter 2 way, not a Genesis chapter 3 fashion. She is offering herself to be redeemed. And Boaz, as the gentle, godly, strong man who now, as uh, the New Testament puts it, is finding out what it means to love a woman and treat her in an understandable way is completely trustable with this vulnerability that Ruth presents to him. And so they take up their roles of Eve and Adam in a Genesis chapter 2, not Genesis 3 way. As God, by this means, draws out of the background of Judges this diamond of a marriage revolution that is the answer to the sexual revolution. 
There's also here, I think, a, a little bit of a glimmer of hope for a woman in a, in a Christian context or a Christian culture, a strong Christian culture, who has a man who is showing her interest, but this man seems unwilling or doesn't want or isn't able or some reason or other is not taking the next step in the dating relationship or, or pop the question or define the relationship as the Christians at Yale used to call it, DTR, conversation, they would say. And I think this tells us that it's not always wrong in a Christian context for a woman uh, to bring things to a head and say, well, now look, where do we stand? Now, sometimes, of course, having said that, that conversation can catch a man off guard. And if you decide to do that, you have to be aware of that. I remember one poor girl coming up to, to me when I was an undergraduate student and saying she felt that we needed to define the relationship. And I was frankly so caught off guard, all I could think of saying was, what relationship? You know. And so I, I, if you are a young college, a college student and that happens to you, or a young man, single man, I trust you'll be more tender having had this sort of context explained to you. <laughs> and if you're a college student, a young woman, or a dating woman, you will need wisdom as to when to bring things to a head. But if, if, the, if the Bible does not say that though it was extremely unusual, not a model to emulate or copy, Though it was extremely unusual, it does not come out and say that Ruth was wrong to take this kind of initiative to push this particular millennial over the edge into actual commitment. Then I don't think it's wrong for a Christian woman to define the relationship and have that kind of conversation as appropriate at the right time. But for that to work, though, you'll need not only a matchmaker, not only a damsel in distress, but also third, the knight in shining armor, or as the Bible describes it with more theological rigor, the Redeemer, verse 10. Now, here's Boaz, this godly man is standing, but who uh, came so much more after Ruth and their marriage together, who before Ruth came along was only half the man he would become. You might say he was ruthless. But now he has the opportunity to redeem her. And so, of course, not only fulfill a legal function as a leveret marriage according to the customs of Deuteronomy, but also fulfill the role of redeemer in that relationship for her, for the family, the course of salvation history as his lineage goes to David, to the Messiah. Now, it seems to me, my friends, that Boaz responds in three very significant ways as a redeemer archetypal figure here. One, he is committed. He has to check to see whether there is uh, the other Redeemer who's closer in relationship will act upon that possibility, but he says, if not, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So now having pushed the point of decision, he makes a commitment He's not allergic to commitment, uh, but understands that this is a part of growing up, that there is a stage in life where there are many possibilities, and you take in all the options, but part of growing up or getting to a next stage of life, even if you are already grown up, is committing to a particular course of life. 
And if you say to yourself, well, I just don't do commitment, then consider what would have happened to Boaz if he had turned his back on this opportunity for commitment. But no, he took courage in both hands and plunged in. And so he took this decision. And you see, often the course of your life is decided not by whether you des- what you decide is perfect, but by whether you perfectly decide, that is, whether you are truly committed. And whether in marriage or in ministry or in friendship or with God, don't give in to a sort of commit-a-phobia. Dive in. Move ahead as a pastor or missionary. Take the potential that has been offered to you this morning as we gather around God's Word and commit. Boaz was committed. Two, Boaz understood covenant. He understood covenant. Now, I can tell you with a degree of certainty that the source of many a marriage difficulty is an initial misunderstanding of covenants that has to be rewired and reconsidered. And you can see that Boaz understood covenant when he says in verse 10, you have made this last kindness or chesed greater than the first. And Boaz is referring specifically to the covenant word of mercy, love, and kindness, chesed. And this covenant, this chesed, is a thread that runs throughout the book of Ruth. It's Naomi's hope that her daughters-in-law will experience chesed in chapter 1. It's Naomi's joy that God's chesed is being experienced by her and Ruth as Boaz takes care of Ruth in his field in chapter 2. And now Boaz sees what Ruth is doing, affirms her chesed commitment to Naomi already, and thanks her for her chesed commitment to Boaz now. See, Boaz understands that what they're about to embark into is a marriage relationship, which is a a chesed, a covenant, and not just a deal. Basically, you see, contemporary society says that marriage is simply a deal. You know, you look for someone who will offer you what you need or what you want or whatever it is and who desires what you can give them in return, and then you get married. What that means, though, is that if at some point what you need or want the other person can no longer provide, then the deal is off. But you see, my friends, contemporary society is wrong. Marriage is not a deal, it is a covenant, has said. Marriage is modeled after the covenant commitment of God to His people, as that is why this word here is used in this relationship and in God's uh, covenant love for the people as well in this book. In the same way that, then that God is unwaveringly, unshakably, unchangeably committed by covenant to His people whom He has redeemed. So we in marriage are to be similarly, unwaveringly, unshakably, unchangeably committed by covenant. It's the same chesed word, by covenant to each other. 
And you say, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that when she is old and can no longer perform as you would like, you stay. That means that when in his middle age he loses his job and can no longer provide as you would like, you stay. That means that when he is disabled through a car accident, you stay. That means that when your children are disabled, you stay. That means that when you argue, you find a way to forgive. It means that you have a chesed covenant. You are one. In fact, in British law, what a man says to his wife and, or vice versa is impermissible as evidence, for the law considers that what you say to your spouse is the same as talking to yourself. Now, for the repentant, there is redemption too. And of course, this is ultimately about Christ's love for the church. But I wish to underline for you the covenant commitment that is necessary for a marriage revolution to redeem the sexual revolution that Boaz understood. Well, Boaz gets uh, that commitment, he gets that covenant, but Boaz also gets contentment. See, what does he do? He tells Ruth to not go back to her mother-in-law empty-handed, but gives her six scoops of, uh, of barley to, uh, to take home. We don't know exactly why six, we don't know exactly how large the measures were, but what we do know is that Boaz is deliberately, by this um, symbol, by this action, he is deliberately reversing the feeling that Naomi had had when she first came back to Bethlehem. Perhaps you remember that Naomi had publicly said that she had gone away full but come back empty. Her offspring of the womb had failed. She had She felt then as empty as only a woman whose husband and two sons had died could feel empty. But now Boaz, you see, understanding his role of redeemer for Ruth, but also Naomi, the family, the mother-in-law, tells Ruth to take back this symbol of their coming fullness. He uses then exactly the same word that Naomi used in chapter 1. He is saying, then you are no longer empty. Be content. Now, you see, we are told, aren't we, so often these days that more is always better. But actually, more is endless. Until we can say enough, we can never be happy. Desiring more will not make you happy unless you can be happy with what you desire. There's one uh, professional basketball player who was interviewed by ESPN towards the end of his life, who at one point in his life had claimed to have slept with 23 different women in 10 days. He said towards the end of his life this, and I quote, "'With all of you men out there who think that having a thousand different ladies is pretty cool,' I've learned in my life, i found out that having one woman a thousand different times is much more 
satisfying. Or perhaps if you prefer ancient wisdom, Epicurus said, do not spoil what you have by desiring what you have not. Remember that what you now have was once among the things you only hoped for. So you see here the knight in shining armor is rescuing the damsel in distress, the prodding of the matchmaker, for he understands commitment, covenant, and contentment. I told Rochelle that I was going to relay this story to you all uh, this morning, but I remember when Rochelle and I uh, first went out on a date. It had been some time coming, at least from my point of view. I'd been trying to persuade her for about six months, and it felt a good deal longer. And the nadir, the, uh, the bottom, the pits in this attempted courtship came when I called her on the phone and I asked her out on a date and she explained that she could not because I have to fix my bicycle that evening. <laughs> and I thought I'd heard everything until then, but every possible excuse. But a good friend of hers said to her afterwards, you know, Josh would feel better if you said no after you'd at least given him a chance. And so on a date we went and The rest is history, or rather four children, a decade and a half of ministry, two churches, many, many joys and heartbreaks, excitements and disappointments, but life that is committed, covenant, and content in all of its uh, right sense of that word. So as we think of this... uh, story in this passage, I I wonder then who it is that you need to give a chance. Is there a godly man or woman, a good friend who you are shy of committing yourself to? I wonder if there's someone you need to give a second chance. You know, I've only ever met one perfect person, and I meet him when I pray to him. Everyone else is just a forgiven person. Remember what Jesus said about not forgiving. Oh, yeah, it may well have been his or her fault. But that does not mean that you are not at fault too, at least before heaven. But, of course, most of all, I wonder whether you need to give God a chance this morning. This romance, this matchmaker, damsel in distress, this knight in shining armor, well, it's only really about marriage in as far as marriage is really about the Redeemer and the people He redeems. And perhaps then it's time that, uh, as it were, you put on some anointed oil. You got washed. You lay at the feet of your Redeemer. Who knows, that may be the best commitment you ever made. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You do not leave us in our sin, 
But uh, you send a Redeemer. You have sent a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We take this opportunity to pray for our marriages, for our dating relationships, for our families. Father, would you this day begin a marriage revolution that will be the answer to the sexual revolution? Most of all, Father, I pray that you would draw us to yourself, that seeing faintly prefigured in Boaz, the Redeemer, who is trustable, reliable, gentle, strong. We would be drawn this morning to, once again, or for the first time, lay ourselves at his feet and say, you are my Redeemer. Thank you, you never turn a deaf ear to such a request or prayer, and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.